I would say as a majority, we're outnumbered. The world is growing, it's increasing. The world is getting more and more courageous and more fearless in what they believe and what they stand for. And it seems that Christianity, that people who truly believe in the Lord are getting smaller and smaller, and it would seem that we're outnumbered. In 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 1, we come to a very interesting and encouraging passage. When I was about 12 years old, maybe 13 years old, uh, my dad surrendered his life to be a missionary. And uh, you know the story, my parents, uh, we went, and missionaries, in order, before they go to the field, God had called us to the Northwest Territories of Canada. This is back when I was a young teenager. Uh, we would go from church to church, and we call that deputation. They'd go from church to church all around America and even into Canada, and we would raise financial support so that we can be able to move to the Arctic and not have to work, and my dad can just work full-time on starting the church. And just like all these missionaries on the wall over here, that's only half. The other half, we're going to get up there soon enough. But these missionaries, uh, we've had the privilege of seeing them come to church to church, and we get to see their families and their kids sometimes, and we get to see how God has called them to reach the, uh, the, uh, the people that, that God has called them to reach. Well, on deputation, we would drive, and at this time, I was, like I said, about 13 years old, and I had another brother, Brett. I still have him, uh, Brett. He's, uh, we, have, we're, we, we fought a lot, but he's still alive. So Brett, uh, he's two years younger than me, so if I was 13, he was about 11. And then there's a 10-year gap. At that time, when we started deputation, our third child, the third, my third sibling, my second sibling, uh, the third child in our family, he was maybe one or two years old or something like that. And as we traveled on deputation, my dad always liked for my brother and I to sing a special song, like a special music in church. And if you know me, I don't have, you know, God has given many people the gift of singing. And I can, I can sort of carry a tune from time to time, but singing, it's not my, it's not my thing. It's not, in fact, I would rather preach in front of, in front of a million people, maybe that's exaggeration. I'd rather preach in front of thousands of people than sing in front of a half a dozen. It's just, I don't know. You understand. Well, that hasn't changed. It was the same back then as it is today. And every church we went to, every church we went to, every church we went to, uh, my dad wanted my brother and I to sing. And it was, it was good for me in the sense that um, I, I didn't want to but it was one way that I could glorify the Lord. And I was always a struggle for me because I did not, I was so scared to sing in front of people. And every time before church, I'd have to go walk by myself and say, Lord, I don't want to do this, but please put a smile on my face. And Lord, please use me even though I, I don't want to do this. It's sort of a conflict there, but I, I did want to be a blessing. And I remember uh, this particular church we went to once. It was just me and my dad. So Brett wasn't there. At least Brett was there. At least I, we could sing together. But this particular service, and I also had to play guitar. I wasn't very good at that either. Well, this particular service is me and my dad, and we flew, and we were at this really big church. There must have been 1,000 or 2,000 people at this church. Very big auditorium. It was their missions conference. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, it's just me. 
my dad's not going to make me sink because that would just not be, that would not, I wouldn't, please dad, no. So I didn't say anything because if I brought it up, my dad would say, oh yeah, I'll let you sink. So I, I tried to, didn't say anything. And we were, we drove there. And as soon as we got into the auditorium, it just kept going. It was humongous. And there was people everywhere. There was a balcony and there was lights. And I, I was just terrified. And so it was just me and my dad. I'm sitting on the front. And right before the preaching time started, um, things are different in America, okay? Uh, right before the preaching time started, you know, uh, a group came up to sing special music. And it was another missionary family that was there. And there was all kids, and they all matched. There was like 12 of them. And they all matched perfectly, and they all had instruments, and they all uniformed, and they all stood straight, and they all had a perfect smile. And they sang amazing. I mean, very good. And I thought to myself, wow, that was really good, you know? At least I don't have to go up there and sing. And so my dad walks up. He was the guest preacher that night. My dad walks up, and he thanked the family for singing. And I'm not... I'm not making this up. <laughs> you already know what's going to happen. <laughs> my dad, he says up there, and he's like, man, that is, you, you, that family sing very well. He's like, did you know? My son sings. <laughs> and he's pointing at me, and right now I'm hiding. And the pastor there, he stands up and he's like, brother, bring your son up here. I don't have my guitar. I'm supposed to sing this a cappella. I don't have my, the words with me. I don't need them, but... And my dad says, Tim, and he does this. <laughs> and the first time in my life I ever, I wanted to say no to my dad in church. So I, I slunk up here. And 12, 13 years old, if you're a boy, you know, that's the age. That's the age when life is changing in you. And I'm going up, and I'm walking up. And <laughs> I'm walking up like this. And now I'm, not say, now I'm just asking, Lord, would you please return right now? Please come. <laughs> And save me from this peril. And I walk up there, and I am not smiling. My dad's going like this, you know. He's so sad. And I'm thinking, are you tone deaf, Father? Do you know how bad I am at singing? So I get up here, and I don't, I don't have the key. I can't hear. I don't know. It's the key of C, and it's the song Willing. Some of you teenagers, we sing it at camp. It's the song Willing. And so I get up there, and I start singing, and it's, the key is too high. Like, and I know it. And... <laughs> And if you know music, and, the key, I, and I know now the chorus is coming, it's not going to be pretty. But I'm trusting in the Lord, and I sing, and I'm just going to end the story there and just let you know that it was probably the worst performance of my life. And what made it worse was the family right before me was the best performance I've ever heard in my life. And I remember singing and finishing, and I walked down, and my dad stands up, and my dad's tearing up, and he says, thank you, son. For singing that song. And I'm walking down, and I'm like, you're welcome? <laughs> are you crying because you're ashamed of me? <laughs> like, why are you crying, Father? And I was, I was scared out of my mind. And maybe you've had scary moments, like maybe not quite like that, but you've had scary moments in your life where you were forced to do something maybe you didn't want to do. And what was my motivation, motivation for doing that was, well, my dad told me to do it, right? And it was in front of everybody. I couldn't rebel. I couldn't say no. I just got up and I did it. And after, on the ride home, I look at my dad and I said, Dad, please, I beg you, don't ever ask me to do that again. And he did. 
But uh, it wasn't as a big church. You'd be surprised. The average church in America and in Canada, they are maybe about 30 or 40 people. That's what I was used to singing to. Never to several thousand. We come to this story here, and you could call that an act of courage or just an act of obedience. I don't know what you want to call what I did on that moment there. Jonathan does something very courageous, very heroic, and I would rather have to repeat that day over and over again than consider doing what Jonathan was about to do right here in this story. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 14, the Bible explains here that the Philistines are encamped against Israel and they are going to go to war and Israel is way outnumbered. There is nowhere to go. There is nothing to do. Jonathan and his armor bearer stand up and do something very courageous for God. And when I read this passage, and we're going to read it, I can't help but ask myself, what could give him the courage to do what Jonathan was about to do? And that's what we're going to look at today. This idea of courage, and let's see exactly what gave Jonathan this courage to do what was necessary. Now, before we continue reading chapter 14, I want us to go back to chapter 13. So you're in 1 Samuel. Just go back one chapter. And I want us to see this first reason why Jonathan stood up and did something very courageous for God. He risked him and his armor bearer's life. Because in chapter 13, verse 1, we find that there was a need. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Mishmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. Okay, so 2,000 with Saul, 1,000 with Jonathan. There's only 3,000 people right now. Verse 3, and Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also had, had, was had an abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Mishmash eastward from Beth Haven. So we see here in the beginning that Jonathan and his armor bearer are about to do something very courageous. They're about to just two guys versus the entire army all by themselves. Why would they do that? They would do that because there was a need. There was a tremendous need. They were, they were, the army was set before them. They were completely outnumbered. And that is the first reason here. The need was great because, first of all, they were completely outnumbered. How many Israelites were there again? How many thousand? There was 3,000 that were ready, and the rest were in their tents. They weren't ready. They had about 3,000, and according to verse 5, there was 
A lot of Philistines. A lot. 30,000 chariots. Just the chariots alone far outnumbered the amount of people that were there. And not just that. Back then, often a chariot would have at least two people on it, one to steer and one to maybe hold a bow or the sword. Some chariots were big enough to hold multiple people. There was 30,000 chariots. There were 6,000 horsemen and people as a sandwich. There's a lot of people. Israel was far outnumbered. There are a lot of instances in the Bible where people were far outnumbered. I think of Daniel chapter 3, verse 10. Do you remember the, the, the three Hebrews? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you remember them? They were the only three guys that said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we will not worship your golden idol. We will not worship your statue. We will serve the one and only true God. They were the only three in the entire nation, apparently, that did not bow. Or at least the only three in that stadium that did not bow. They were far outnumbered. Do you remember in Judges 7, do you remember Gideon's 300? That's a great story. At first, Gideon had 32,000, and he was up against the Amalekites. There was 120,000 of them. 32,000 to 120,000, that's not great odds, but it's better than these odds here. But you know the story. 32,000, that was too much. God says, no, 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 I want to get all the credit for this. So send everyone home that doesn't want to be there. And thousands and thousands leave. And then God says, that's still too much. And God weighs it down to 300 men. Because God doesn't actually need an army. God can go like this, and his will be accomplished should he desire. However, Judges chapter 7, we see that Gideon's 300 did win the war. I think of us as Christians today. I would say as a majority, we're outnumbered. The world is growing. It's increasing. The world is getting more and more courageous and more fearless in what they believe and what they stand for. And it seems that Christianity, that people who truly believe in the Lord are getting smaller and smaller, and it would seem that we're outnumbered. If you were to, as a youth pastor, I often ask the teenagers, how many Christians do you know of in your school? And some of them would say, uh, you know, there's, there's some Christians in their school, but they would all agree that majority don't go to church, majority are not saved. As a, as a majority... And in public schools, our children are outnumbered. Perhaps even in your own family. Maybe in your own family, your moms, your dads, your brothers, your sisters, your aunts, your uncles, maybe in your family, majority of your family is not saved. They don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Maybe even in your own family, you're outnumbered. It's possible at work, uh, depending on where you work. At my job, I have a pretty good, pretty good record here at my job. But perhaps where you work and in your workplace, you're outnumbered. Perhaps the average coworker that you surround yourself with uh, is, is not saved, that doesn't know the Lord as their Savior. When you're on the city bus, you're probably outnumbered. If you were to take all the Christians in the world, I think it's safe to say that we're outnumbered. And to be fair, we've always been outnumbered. If you took all the Christians in the world and subtracted those who were even fighting, you look at Israel, there was 3,000 who were fighting, but the rest were in the tents. They weren't fighting. There was more than 3,000, but there was only 3,000 that were fighting. So if you were to even just take the Christians today who are actually standing up for what they believe in and actually going out and, and, and witnessing and trying to be the, the Christian that God has called them to be, there would even be less of those who are actually on the front lines for God. We're outnumbered today. Jonathan and his armor bearer, 
are about to do something incredible because there was a need. And one of those needs is that the fact that they were completely outnumbered. Someone had to do something. Not only was Israel outnumbered, but if you look in verse 6 here, we're going to see that they were also scared. Look in verse 6, chapter 13. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan. Some of them completely, they, they were gone. They didn't just hide. They crossed the river to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. You see, there was a need because they were completely outnumbered, and they were scared. And I don't know about you, but sometimes standing up for Jesus and being the kind of Christian that we are called to be is scary sometimes. It's difficult. It's tough, especially when pressure and when uh, all around us, the world is pressuring us to change and to do this or to do that or believe this or believe that or drop that standard and do this. There is pressure around us at all times, and fighting for Jesus can be scary at times. Sometimes it's scary to go up to a loved one and, 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 and ask them, do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? That, should that be scary? It shouldn't be scary. We're talking about their eternal soul. But it's scary because, oh, what if they get offended? What if they don't like me anymore? What if I lose this friend because I talk about Jesus? And all these thoughts start, start going through our mind, and the devil's really good at trying to scare us out of being the Christian that God needs us to be. But they were outnumbered. They were scared, just as we can be today. But if you go to chapter, uh, uh, stay in the same chapter, go to verse 19, we also see something even worse. <laughs> Look at chapter 19, uh, verse 19. It says, Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. Okay, that doesn't mean there was no guy named Smith. All right, that means there was no blacksmith to be found all throughout the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattocks. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks and for the axes and to sharpen the goads. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan, but with Saul and Jonathan his son, was, uh, was there found. So not only were they outnumbered, not only were they scared, they didn't have weapons, and they're going to war. They're completely outnumbered, and they have nothing to fight with because they had this agreement that, I guess, at this time, Israel didn't have a way to sharpen their, their utensils, their, their swords and their goads and stuff, so they would go to the Philistines to do so. Well, they're at war with the Philistines now. So what do they do? Are they going to let them sharpen their swords? Of course not. Not only were they outnumbered, they were scared, but they were weaponless. And also, now go to chapter 14 and verse 2. It says in chapter 14 and verse 2, 
And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. To make matters worse, their leader was as far away from, he was, without leaving the battle, he was as far away from, the, from it as he possibly could be. They were also, if I could say it this way, leaderless. Their leader did not know what to do. Their leader was also scared. He did have a weapon. Only he and his son had a sword. No one else did. He was scared, and he wasn't doing anything. He was sitting under a tree, not, not having any idea what to do next. Sometimes these situations can seem exactly what we are in today. We're outnumbered. We are scared at times. We don't know. We don't have the, maybe the proper weapons to fight, although we as Christians do have a weapon. The Bible is called the sword of the Spirit. We have a weapon that's with us at all times. But sometimes we may even be without a leader. We may not know who to look to and where to go. We may be lost. We may be like the Israelites. We're scared. We're hiding in the thickets and we don't know what to do. And if I could say it this way, when you're outnumbered, when you feel scared at times, when you feel like quitting, when you feel like running away instead of facing the problem, when you feel lost and alone, keep fighting. Don't quit. The song Pastor Silver just sang, when that preacher, when, when the mom, when at times when we don't feel like we know what to do, keep praying. Keep going. Don't quit. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 10, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Ephesians 6.10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 2 Timothy 2.1, thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I could list many more verses for you where God is challenging his people that when the going gets tough, keep going. Keep fighting. Don't give in. Don't quit. I know the world is enticing at times, and sometimes it's easier just to succumb and give in, but let's keep our, our face in the book, let's keep reading, and let's keep fighting on for Jesus. Saul and his armor bearer didn't quit because there was a need. But not only was there a need, if you go to verse 6, we find that Jonathan and his armor bearer had something that it seemed no one else had at this time. Not only was there a need, but there was also faith. Verse 6 says, And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. That's just a way of saying these, these uh, saying uncircumcised is another way of saying these are guys that don't follow Jehovah God, they don't worship Jehovah God, they, don't, uh, they have their own false gods. That's kind of what he's implying here. Let's go over to these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. They had faith. Faith that God was going to do something. Faith in God's provision. And I got to pause here for a second because I have to give a shout out to the armor bearer here. Now, you may not realize this, but no one's fighting 
And then Jonathan has this great idea, this great idea. He says, hey, buddy, come over here. Then this is his armor bearer. He's actually holding Jonathan's sword. He's holding Jonathan's armor, his shield, so that Jonathan doesn't have to carry it. Hey, hey, buddy, come over here. The Bible calls him a young man. So he was younger than Jonathan. Come and, hey, I got an idea. Come here, come here. See how no one's doing anything? What if we did something? Now, don't, don't tune out yet. Hear, hear my plan here. Let us go over. I'm just reading what the Bible says. Let us go over into the garrisons of these uncircumcised. And it may be that the Lord will work for us. Did you, did you hear what I just read? It may be that the Lord will work for us. There's a chance that God's going to be on our side on this one. It may be that the Lord will do some great things through us. And I would, if I was the armor bearer, I would have said, excuse me, can we go back real quick? You said there, there, might, there may be. <laughs> I need a, there will be, Jonathan. And he, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Just, just let me finish, okay? Verse 7, uh, sorry, the end of verse 6. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. What Jonathan is saying is, I don't know exactly what God has in store, but all I know is that I want God to use me right now. And he looks at his armor bearer and says, will you go with me? And in verse 7, the armor bearer says this. It says, and his armor bearer said unto him, no way, man, you're on your own. Is that what it says in verse 7? If, if, if uh, Pastor Tim was the armor bearer, that may be what it says. But it says in verse 7, it says, his armor bearer said unto him, do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Armor bearer says, just me and you versus the entire army? Let's do it. Whatever you say, Jonathan, I'm there with you. Every leader needs a faithful armor bearer because Jonathan could not have done what he was about to do without his armor bearer. And we'll see that in just a second. Jonathan relied, he needed, and his armor bearer fully trusted in his master for victory. I believe that every Christian in this world is called to be either a leader or an armor bearer. If God hasn't called you to be the leader, now we're all called to be leaders in one way or another. Even if you're a sibling, you're called to help be a leader in your family, even if you're the youngest. And if you're a parent, of course, you're a leader over your, your children. We're all called to be leaders in some way. But maybe in a, in a grander sense, if God hasn't called you to be a leader, then he definitely has still called you to be the armor bearer for your leader. What kind of an armor bearer are you? What kind of a leader are you? Are you an armor bearer that only holds the armor when it's easy, when it's convenient, or when you're needed the most? Jonathan had faith in God's provision that God was going to do something through him. Now look in verse 8. It says, Then said Jonathan, Behold, here's my plan. Now notice the armor bearer says, I'll do whatever you think is good before he even heard the plan. Because I think if he heard the plan, he might change his mind. Verse 8, Jonathan says, Behold, we will pass over unto these men and we will discover ourselves unto them. Okay, so we're going to walk up and go, Hey, over here! Verse 9, Armor Bear's going, what did I sign up for? Verse 9, if they say thus unto us, tarry 
until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place. Jonathan says, this is what, we're going to walk over and say, hey, you, hey, Philistines, right here, king's son, right here. And if the Philistines yell back and say, stay there, we'll come to you, then our plan is to stay there. Okay, this is a great plan. Anything else? Yeah, yeah, oh, I'm not done. Verse 10. But if they say thus, come up unto us, then we will go up. Okay. Anything else? For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. Jonathan says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to wave ourselves, make ourselves known, and if they say, you guys stay there, we'll come to you, then we're going to stay here and we're going to defend our ground. But if they say, I see you, come up here, then I know that God is going to give us a great victory. That's your plan? That's my plan. Are you sure? Oh, I'm sure. You don't want to pray more? No, this is what God... Okay. Armor bearer says, let's do this. Let's roll. Whatever you say. Jonathan had faith in God's provision. He also had faith in God's victory. Jonathan wouldn't have done this if he, if he thought there was a huge chance he was going to die. He had so much faith in God that God was going to use him and his armor bearer for deliverance. Why would he risk his life for this? Because there was a great need. Why would Jonathan risk his life for this? Because he had faith in God. But not just that. Go back to verse 6 really quick. I mentioned this already once. What did Jonathan call the Philistines in verse 6? Uncircumcised, right? And the idea of that is simply a statement to indicate where their religious belief was, where their faith was. It wasn't in God. It wasn't in God's laws or God's commands. It was in themselves and in their own gods. And not only was there a need, not only was there faith that Jonathan had, but there was a cause worth fighting for. See, because we're talking about God's people, God's chosen people that were at stake of, of extinction, perhaps, Jonathan was thinking. And Jonathan wanted to not just fight for himself. That wasn't part of the plan. He wanted to fight to defend God's honor. He specifically called them these uncircumcised to point out the fact that they were unbelievers. And Jonathan wanted to stand up to defend the honor of God. They were not God-fearing people. Instead, they feared idols and false gods. This battle was more than physical freedom from oppression, but also a desire to defend the one true God. You remember Jonathan's best friend, David, when he, on the battlefield versus Goliath? What did David say? He said this famous phrase, when nobody else would fight against Goliath, David said, is there not a cause? He's saying this Philistine is here. He's defying God's army. He's saying that God is not powerful enough to defeat. He's saying that I will defeat you single-handedly. And David said, isn't there a better, greater cause than just our life? Isn't this battle worth fighting for, for God's sake, for his name? This giant is blaspheming God's name. That is a cause worth fighting for. There's a reason Jonathan and David were close friends here. I believe that Jonathan was trying his best to defend God's honor. But not only that, I believe he was also trying to rally the people. Because let me tell you something. When someone has a cause worth fighting for, you'd better look out. Look what happens here. In verse 13, 
It says, and Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet. So it was a steep incline. He was there climbing and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and armor bearer slew after them. So I, I kind of skipped verse 12 here. So what, what happens here in verse 12 is they go up. Verse 12 says, and the men of the garrisons answered Jonathan, his armor bearer, and said, come up to us. Ah, that's what Jonathan was hoping for. He told his armor bearer, if they tell us to come up, that means God gave us the victory. And that's exactly what they said. Come up to us, it says, and we will show you a thing. In other words, oh, you're cocky right now. You, you guys want to expose, expose yourself? Well, come up here. We'll show you who we are. So what did they do? They came up after them. They climbed up on their hands and feet. The Bible says that they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after him. So Jonathan gave, allowed his armor bearer to hold the sword. And when they would come at Jonathan, somehow he would grab them, he would throw them on the ground, and his armor bearer would finish them. And then Jonathan would run to the next guy, he would grab him, throw him on the ground, and his armor bearer would finish him. It says in verse 14, And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within, as it were, in half acre of land, which a yoke of oxen might plow. So not a long distance, but just a half acre, a short distance time as men started to run at him, God gave Jonathan the ability to defend himself and take on these 20 men. Now, you have to understand something. God's in control here. You're talking thousands and thousands, perhaps 100,000 plus people in this army. If you lose 20 guys, you know, from a grand scale of things, 20 to compared to 100,000, that's not very much. But in verse 15, something happened. And there was trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled, and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. This is from the Philistines' camp. They started to get scared. Verse 16, And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went on beating down one another. What is going on? Jonathan's armor bearer go up. They do what they can for God. 20 guys fall to them, and Philistines start getting scared. They start trembling. They start shaking. They get so confused. The Bible says they start fighting each other. They start fighting each other off. And then one of the watchmen says, Hey, King Saul, I don't know why, but they're retreating right now, and I think they're killing each other. We should probably take a look at this. Verse 17, Then said Saul unto the people that were with him, Number now and see who is gone from us. So Saul says, Okay, who did this? What's going on out there? Find out who's, who's missing. It says, and when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said unto Ahiah, bring hither the ark of God. For the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. And to make a long story short, they go up to war. They, go start, they start battling with people. And once the battle started to rage on, verse 22 Likewise, all the men of Israel, which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. 
The guys that were scared, the guys that were afraid that were running for their lives, when they saw the tide turn, their courage, their courage came back to them. And they followed suits and they helped pursue and win this amazing victory for God. Jonathan is armor bearer. When, they, when nobody else would, they stood up for God. And because they stood up, their, their cause rallied the people around them. Because people need a leader to look up to. They need someone to, to follow. Now, that person should be Jesus Christ. That should be the person they follow. But sometimes when somebody else they know they, or they appreciate or love stands up for what is right, it, it gives courage to others to do the same thing. And when somebody has a cause worth fighting for, as I said earlier, you better look out. Because people with a cause are the ones that win gold medal Olympics. They win those gold medal rings. You ever interview some of these people, how did you get to this point? And they will tell you for the last four years, they didn't sleep. They, didn't, they, they, they were practicing hours and hours and hours and hours a day. They had to give up relationships and friends and family to dedicate their life to winning this particular medal. People with a cause win championships in sports. People with a cause invent things. People with a cause for God go to church as much as they can. People with a cause are the ones that become missionaries and pastors. People with a cause for God become full-time workers. People with a cause change this world for the better, some for the worse, if their motives are wrong. God is looking for people who have a cause. And that cause needs to be Him, needs to be God. You look at parents today, some of you, you work long hours. What's your cause for getting up and going to work? Oh, you don't probably, you've been working your same job for years, for decades now. You don't really care about your job. I mean, you might, if you're a doctor or nurse, you may appreciate what you're able to do, but the job itself is tiring. It's monotonous. You know, you don't care for the job. You would love to maybe switch things up, but you get up anyway. You go to work each and every day. Why? Because you have a cause. You have your family to take care of, right? You have your mortgage to pay. You have your car. You, you have a cause worth fighting for. What is your cause for Christ? Do you have a cause for him? We need some Christians today. Even though we're outnumbered, even though we, there is a tremendous need in our world for, for leadership, we need those same people to see the need but to see and have that faith in Christ like Jonathan did and cling to a cause worth fighting for. What's the greatest cause a Christian could have, I believe, is to, to win the lost. You realize today that there are, if you, don't, if you were to die today, the Bible says there's two places you'd go. You'd go to heaven or you'd go to hell. And I feel as if Christians really, truly grasp the concept of hell and eternity, it would change the way we think, to change the way that we witness, the way that we walk and talk. There is a cause worth fighting for. In 1987, a young man by the name of Todd, he rubbed his, groggly, his groggy eyes and awoke somewhere on a campus in a dorm room, headed to his first college class. 
Todd had grown up in Wheaton College, but left the area to attend Fresno State in California, where he hoped to spark a professional baseball career. However, his time at the university was cut short to a terrible automobile collision. It did not take his life, but it did take away his future in baseball. Todd decided to return home to finish his college experience at Wheaton. There he met a young woman named Lisa. Todd and Lisa graduated in 1991 and were married three years later. Todd and Lisa moved to New Jersey, where Todd got a job working with Oracle that saw him traveling frequently all around the world. The Beamers had their first child, David, and a few years into their marriage, David got a little brother named Andrew. In the summer of 2001, Todd and Lisa found out they were pregnant again, this time with a little girl. Now, by many accounts, the Beamers were a pretty ordinary young family living a pretty ordinary but good life. On September 10, 2001, Todd and Lisa had just returned home from a trip to Italy. And Todd decided to spend the night with his wife and boys before opting for an early flight the next day to go back to work for a business trip. That flight that he got on that morning, if you're familiar with the events of September 11th, 2001, the flight he got on was Flight United 93. Seeing as September 11th actually is just a few weeks away, as we consider this story here, I suppose the morning of September 11th was much like any other red-eye flight, An early alarm, a hurried shower, quiet goodbyes to the wife and kids, maybe coffee and ran out the door. United 93 was delayed that morning due to heavy traffic and would take off almost an hour behind schedule. I imagine the few passengers boarding the flight were tired and a bit grumpy because of the delay. The flight was just getting airborne when the first plane hit the World Trade Center towers. About 45 minutes into United 93's flight, terrorists stormed the cockpit, murdered the pilot and co-pilot. They told the passengers that, had, that they had been hijacked and they shuffled them to the back of the plane where they would not be able to interfere. Some passengers made calls to loved ones when they heard the news about planes hitting the Trade Center and the Pentagon. Todd made a call to his wife, Lisa. Ironically, a telephone operator by the same name, Lisa, answered the phone. But the lines across the country were so flooded that he couldn't get, he couldn't get the line over to his wife. Many calls were unable to be completed throughout the day. Todd's call was forwarded to this airline supervisor named Lisa. He informed her that the plane he was on was hijacked and the pilots were all dead. He told her the terrorists had knives and a bomb. And at one point when the plane made a sharp turn, he yelled, I think we're going down. Now, it's impossible to imagine what could be going through your mind at a time like this. But you have to believe that Todd and the other passengers were starting to connect the dots at this point. 
They heard about the World Trade Center. They heard about the second one now. And now this one being hijacked. The flight was going down soon, and it probably was headed nowhere good. And it turns out that United 93's intended target that day was uh, Washington, D.C., so either the Capitol building or perhaps the White House. Now, to Todd and the other passengers that day, I suppose the target destination hardly mattered. United 93 was going nowhere good, and it was becoming clear this would likely be their final flight. The details of what exactly happened next aren't totally clear, but this much is. A moment of extraordinary courage. One Todd had spent his entire life unknowingly preparing for. Todd and a few around him decided to fight back. He and some other ordinary passengers and two ordinary flight attendants would plan to force their way into the cockpit at all costs and steer the plane into the ground. We know this because this was the plan he told Lisa, the airline, the operator. At a moment's notice, these ordinary people made an extraordinary choice to sacrifice their lives in an attempt to save the lives of perhaps countless others. Still on the phone with Lisa, Todd recited the Lord's Prayer and then the words to Psalm 23. He asked Lisa to call his family and let them know that he loved them. As soon as he finished talking to Lisa, he placed the phone on his seat, is what we're guessing, leaving the line on. And the last words we ever hear Todd say, you might, you might already know the line. The last words that Todd say is, are you ready? Let's roll. Scrambling can be heard after that point, but we know what happened. They were able to take control of the cockpit and landed into a, a farm field in Pennsylvania. Not land, but crash. Todd and the others could have let their current situation stop them from taking action. Imagine if they hadn't. Now, as an American, obviously, this story resonates more, but we could all relate to the fact that lives were saved at this time. So many Christians today get caught up in a situation in life, and they find themselves doing nothing for God, not taking action. Sometimes when the walls seem to be closing in, when you seem to be going through a hard time, maybe you just feel off and you don't really quite know why. When life gets tough, that's when heroes are born. And we all go through tough times in life. I don't know the struggles you go through. Maybe you're going through a, a difficult one even now. Maybe there's one coming just down the road. But when your life gets tough, and it will, that is the best time to take a deep breath, look up to the skies, look up to God, and say, Lord, I don't know what to do, but let's roll. Whatever you want me to do, Lord, I will follow you. Jonathan and his armor bearer did something pretty extraordinary and saved the lives of countless Israelites because there was a need, because they had faith in God, because there was a cause worth fighting for. What is your cause 
for Jesus Christ today. If you could stand with me now as we close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word. Thank you.